I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I just think about jobs that I used to have that aren't even that long ago and say, if I was just plopped back into Barnes and Noble, Mm. could I use the register? And I don't know if I could. (laughs) That'd be an awkward situation. And I I don't remember how to do this anymore. I left left working at Barnes and Noble in 2014, and that wasn't even that long ago. (laughs) Now imagine I lived an entire lifetime as a separate person, then was required to go back and work the register at Barnes. Like everything (laughs) in the past six years had been a fake life, and they go, boom, and I'm at Barnes and Noble. Well, I don't know. Here's the thing. Do you have neural atrophy in uh, atrophy in that instant that you are living out the alternate lifetime do you because over time the thing is that the the neural pathways that we don't use it's like uh pathways through a meadow not taken start to get overgrown by grass again and so if picard is living out an alternate lifetime what is this how does that translate to his to you know is is, is it do you lose the experiences, because in some sense it's instant. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you'd have to have neural growth in order to gain the experiences. So I, I, I don't know. What is it that did you read? The there's a book I think it's called AD. I think it's called After Death. Yes, it's a one shot. Yes, and it's basically uh, Jeff Lemire and I. Bo- is it Scott Snyder? This, this is the book about the guy who uh, the thief who gets the cure. Right, he cures death. Yeah. And it takes place in this far, far future. Okay. Uh, and he has these strange... It's been a long time since I've read After Death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but death has been cured, and they live on sort of a mountain, and sort of imply the rest of the world is sort of toxic, and that they are on this small island on top of like a plateau. Mm-hmm. And every so often, he's getting these weird broadcasts or something from down in there, and there might be people still alive down there, and he goes on these long expositions to try to figure out what's going on. Are there other people, mm. aside from the small enclave of people that have cured death and are just immortals living there? Um, do you care if I spoil a big chunk of it? Yeah, sure. Anyone who's listening should know that, that, that the, the turn is the part that's the most interesting. That's the most interesting yeah. part, which is that... Um, those broadcasts were made by him and that the human mind can only retain a lifetime's worth of memory. Mm. So if you've lived tens or maybe even hundreds of lifetimes, you've just forgotten everything past a certain (laughs) point. You remember your past lifetime. So he's done Uh, all this shit and he's gone through the process of investigating and learning that it's him Mm. dozens of times before. You know, there are people who have perfect memory. They don't forget anything. If you ask them how many slices of, pe- how many pieces of pepperoni were on the third piece of pizza that they ate at their 12th birthday, they can tell you. And one of the problems with people like that is they tend to go crazy. Yeah, you yeah. can't forget. <laughs> Not forgetting is difficult. I mean, you want to, you want to forget. But the it's thing what is, keeps us saner if we, if we were. Yes. Yeah. That's that's exactly it. And I was yep. thinking about the character of Data on Star Trek The Next Generation, that Data is somebody who has perfect memory. He remembers every conversation. So in Star Trek Generations, he gets a, an emotion chip, and he remembers a joke told in the pilot episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and laughs at it. And the truth is, that would be every single moment of his life would suddenly be recontextualized, and it might shut his brain down. Because suddenly things uh, would come back on you that would upset you. 
that didn't upset him before because he had this sort of dispassionate view of it. And he has an ethics program, but what he doesn't have is an emotional reaction to things like betrayal or hurt. He would suddenly feel the death of his father and the betrayal of Lore and the death of Tasha Yar. And every moment he had where maybe somebody was treating him unfairly, like the first half of season two with Dr. Pulaski <laughs> every time like somebody treated him with like anti-robot racism, all of that would hit him all at once mm -hmm. when he suddenly had emotions to contextualize it because that memory would be just as new as it was when he first experienced it. What do you think data would use as unhealthy coping strategies? <laughs> Like if he gets to, if he gets to the point where it's just it's all too much, man. It's just it's got to be like Bender and jacking jacking on, uh. right? He's just plugging electricity <laughs> through his body that gets him high. You uh. get some kind of robot drug, <laughs> and I think like and you see in Star Trek: First Contact, his reaction to actual physical sensation, like somebody blowing on small hairs that he suddenly has on his arm, that he actually feels. Um, sensation and pleasure on his skin because he didn't have skin, even with the emotion chip. And I imagine it would be chasing feelings like that, mm. that he could become a junkie for basic human sensation, sort of like insane kind of sensationalist or sensualist mm. who is... Just full hedonism. Yeah, it'd be like... <laughs> Just like ASMR that is actually, videos. Wait a minute. This and, is Bender. Do you, yes. do you, no, do you remember the Bender? When, he, when he, he becomes human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is, we've, we've solved it. Uh, uh, wait, so I have to. So Michael Pollan, mm -hmm. as I'm sure all of you guys know, oh, yeah. who, who did the Omnivore's Dilemma, he had this bit uh, that I heard him talk about. That was an excerpt from his book about memory and forgetting. And he had the, um, he used the example of his cat. Like he, he, this is like a guy who obviously has probably an awesome garden. Um, and he grows catnip for his cat. And based on his observations of his, you know, he opens the door when he wants to go out and it's a nice day. He opens the door, the gate for the cat to sort of come in and the cat will sort of meander around the maze of all of the plants to find the catnip. But he finds that every single time that his cat goes in, his cat acts like he doesn't know where it is. So, you know, if any of us are pet owners here, if you were to open up the can of food, the cat will run right to where the dish is because he knows, he remembers where it actually is. And he, he was, Pollen was saying the catnip was sort of interfering with the memory part of him. It was getting the cat high in a particular way that was making it so the next time they came to want to get catnip, it couldn't remember the path that was there. And he was like, the forgetting is so important to the experience of life because, and he tells another anecdote about a, a, a researcher in Russia who finds a man on a street who is sort of panhandling, but he's doing these this game, and the guy on the street is like um, a, a genius, and he can remember anything. He has like perfect memory, and so he's like, T you know, tell me what's you know, give me the book and tell me the page number, and I'll re read what's on there. He does this this trick so people will throw him money. So this researcher brings this guy in, and. Uh, you know, gives him money and, and uh, he agrees to doing tests. And the one thing that he ends up finding that is fascinating is um, that the this guy who has perfect memory, who can remember everything, can't sit still and listen to a story. Um, and the reason why was because when he first started to hear a sentence, 
he the man would visualize it in his mind so vividly mm-hmm. and he would connect it to things in his memory that he knew that he knew that he would be distracted and he couldn't pay attention to the story see and data wouldn't have our kind of associative memory the, right. the, the, the fact right. is that the reason we get overloaded is because we form connections between things and when there's too many connections it gets too diffuse uh then it then it becomes uninteresting. It's like it's, right. it's like how stuff when it when it's just you and your friends is really niche and cool, and then it gets pop culture and you know mainstream, and they make fifteen movies, and it's kind of like I'm over it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I also wonder if if memory has something to do with say forgiveness, for instance, that mm. if you've been wronged in a certain way and there's an awful memory, that memory will degrade over time. That it becomes a story you tell yourself, like a game of telephone. Mm. And when that memory becomes imperfect of what somebody did to you, it becomes easier to brush that aside. But I imagine if you had perfect memory, it might be harder to let that moment go. Um, not just because it's it stays clear forever, but I mean, the appreciation of art, I wonder how it would change, is that sometimes if you haven't watched a movie forever... For example, The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if you're watching a movie that you haven't seen since, like, 2003, you're a very different person since you were in 2003, so you do can recontextualize it. But you also forget big chunks of it. You forget certain jokes or moments or... And we've had this conversation about the comic books of Frank Miller. You know, he did a lot of Batman and Sin City and things like that. And one of the points that our, our friend Joe Pretty has made a number of times is that the experience of reading Frank Miller comics, and he's kind of the godfather of, of the grim and gritty tough guy stuff, um, that a lot of times the problematic, troubling elements, the stuff that hasn't aged particularly well, uh, that's the stuff you tend to keep in your long-term memory on Frank Miller. But when you reread his stuff later, you forget all of the stuff that you really like and why he was such a a big deal in the first place, why he's such a, a remarkably skilled uh, creator of comic books. And you go, oh my God, he's actually really good at this. And um, that wouldn't be possible. That experience comes from having a flawed memory, from having an imperfect memory right. that you're constantly kind of emptying the cache to fit more stuff in there. And you kind of get this weirdly fragmented version of things that you personally experienced in the past. And I think sometimes the art that you enjoy the most is the stuff that holds up because you're a very different person when you take it every single time mm. and you have a fragmentary memory, but you still have an emotional attach to those yeah. uh, imperfect memories. Mm-hmm. And you remember that motion much more clearly. Sure. Which I mean, is why you isn't can... That, that's, that's the nostalgia problem. Yeah, right? nostalgia is... Uh... Because people are so much more attached to the idea of the feeling of that thing that they're really not interested in whether or not it's good or bad for them. Yeah. And they just want to chase that feeling like a, like a drug. So if I could class this place up a little bit, I was just sure. reminded of uh, Holden Caulfield. This mm-hmm. is in Catcher mm-hmm. in the Rye. He returns to the same museum over and over and over again, the, like the Natural History Museum, I think, from the time that he's a kid. And it's his favorite place in the whole world. And he says, it's the same. Every, what he loves about it is it's the same every time you go there, except that you have changed. Right. And, and I think there's an implication that you see the projection of your own differences in, on this thing, which is always the same. But he says, maybe you've been through like some major life event, or maybe you just saw a rainbow in a puddle of gasoline, and you're not the <laughs> same man that you were last time you walked into this museum. And so return, we're returning to a piece of art as you've had different life experiences and pulled different things and different meanings, as well as then it ties you back to who you were when you saw it the other time. It's one of the great things about sharing movies with people that we love who haven't right. seen it before. Right. Yeah, and you you have to articulate a feeling, and I think that 
that's the skill that a lot of artists have is how do you transmit a thought from one brain to another when you have an imperfect mechanism doing it? We're not telepathic. Uh, I can't share this feeling that I had with something because so much of it is so subjective that everything you take in, half of it is this external data, but it's being shot through the prism of all my lived experiences. And that's the stuff you can't immediately share with people. So you don't know if the movie you showed them and they seem to enjoy it in exactly the same way you do. It is a different experience. Not, and, and I think one of the reasons that a lot of people get kind of toxic in fan spaces mm. fan spaces is that um they're trying to recapture feelings that they had when they were six years old mm. and you're never gonna you're never gonna be six years old again you're never gonna be able to look at a work of art as if you're six years old again with all that stuff going over your head and you get a lot of especially like weird right-wing grifter YouTube circles of people who <laughs> get really angry that suddenly quote-unquote politics are in their art mm. When it's always been there, but when you're six years old, you might not pick up the fact that this episode of Star Trek isn't just a space adventure. It's about why right. war is bad or racism is bad. And you're trying to force something to give you the same feeling of stuff going over your head when you were six. And you're just never going to recapture that. And so people get really angry at Star mm. Wars movies. When you're never going to be six years old watching a new Star Wars movie, well, I've again. got many other reasons why I would be angry at Star Wars movies. <laughs> but I mean, I almost I think <laughs> we should be teaching uh, elementary school children better critical theory, which is yeah. like like literally like what we teach, uh, co you know, high school, uh, sorry, college uh, English majors about like literary theory, because it tells you that there are a lot of different ways to look at the same object and that the object changes depending on how you how you go about it right and that every single piece of literature is intertextual but which means that it's different because it's a different person reading it and so you bring the text of your life to the text of the book and where the two of them meet there's a resonance which is personal and unique to you and the, the it, intersubjective space I think that's right yeah. I mean even uh, when the piece of equipment you're using to analyze something your eyes your brain is a sentient organic thing <laughs> You're, it's going to be so much of it is subjective. Of course. That if you're watching a movie like Jaws and you've actually been bitten by a shark, mm -hmm. it's going to hit you differently than if yeah. you're somebody who's lived in Iowa and never seen open water. Well, what is this that uh, the... Uh, since you're sort of talking about it in an educational mode, although I think we're we're sort of missing Radio versus the Martians chief pedagogist yeah, yeah, here yeah, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. to be Becky, but uh, I remember Sam and Becky having this conversation about the lie to children problem, um, and it's... If you want to explain something very complicated, so I'm running into this right now talking about police. Mm. So this is a very difficult thing because when it's a three-year-old and you're talking about police, you'd be like, hey, police are the people that you that you have that are your neighbors that are there to keep you safe. Um, I wish that were true. And the older they get, you know, like maybe my eight-year-old has a point as a part where he's, you know, he's asking questions like, are all the police all good guys? And now my answer is, um, my answer is no, because there are bad guys in any profession. There be people who can be there for reasons that are not good. So there are good good guys and there are bad guys. And then you get into systemic racism a little right, further down right. the road. Well, yeah, the, but the hard part is it's like talking about Christopher Columbus. And I, <laughs> I, I wonder. No, but I mean, the more you open it up, the more you realize the first thing you said was a lie. Yeah. And this becomes the issue about teaching stuff to anyone any not just children anyone this, that your first thing that you're going to reveal to someone is going to be so 
uh, vague or inaccurate or just straight untrue because it's, that's the only way to sort of introduce a concept without completely destroying it. You don't want to. You don't want to tell a kid they live in a dystopia. I mean, that's that's <laughs> no. really what it is. It's like, oh yeah, those guys don't actually protect us unless you're 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 landed gentry. Essentially, <laughs> they protect the private property of rich people. And you know, hey, if if you're a rich person and your stuff gets stolen, they'll try to find it. Otherwise, somebody will show up with like a buzz cut who will talk down to you for an hour, write stuff on a piece of paper, either accuse you of being a liar or talk to you like you're wasting their time, then walk away and nothing will get done. But now you can you can have a form that you can send to your insurance company. <laughs> That's the truth of it. And if they pull you over and they don't and they've just decided you're the wrong color, they can orchestrate reasons to kill you and not get punished for it. And that's not a thing you want to tell a child, but no. at the same time, that's a thing that a lot of adults have trouble taking on because your main interface, if you've got a life where you mostly live in the suburbs and are of a certain color, you don't encounter the cops that way. That your mm. your version of the cops is sort of this mythologized fictional version that you see somebody like the cops from Law and Order or Columbo or TJ Hooker or even Green Lantern or Commissioner Gordon or something. That's who cops are, but that has no bearing on what cops are in real life. And it's funny because you can take somebody who every interaction with cops is like what interactions with cops really are like, which is, wow, what a fucking asshole. That guy who scared the shit out of me and made me feel unsafe and didn't actually help me. Um, then when you see a cop driving behind you when you're in your car, do you feel safer in that moment? <laughs> or do you feel like somebody is going to nitpick you and find an excuse to punish you? Because that's funny how, despite the fact that every actual interaction that most people have with real police in real life is usually kind of tense and uncomfortable, um, if not outright terrifying to some people, they still, their primary mode of looking at it is through fiction, mm. where yep. these are the main characters and yep. these are heroes. Yeah, so they think that the, that the police are the good guys for the same reason that they think that Ronald Reagan was a war hero. <laughs> yeah. Because Even they, saw on, they saw him on the screen. Even Ronald Reagan is confused on that front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's kind of, in a weird sort of way, how our media can be kind of dangerous. And that I don't think the people who make Law and Order are going out of their way to make, you know, state propaganda in the mm. same way that, say, the people who make cops are. I think a lot of times they're telling a story. But sure. the problem is, is that their mode of dealing with cops also comes from previous media right. rather than their actual interactions with cops. Right. So cops, I don't think the show Cops set out to be like, how can we create like more racism and fear in people's <laughs> hearts? Like, I don't think it was really their goal. I, I don't I think first of all they didn't under they don't understand how intrinsic versus in extrinsic racism works and that they're programming right. people to, for worst attitudes but I think that they also um, they were reflecting modes of entertainment and of culture that came before them and uh, they just didn't rec they failed to recognize that they were continuing something deeply problematic and right. they're taking the worst day of somebody's life and turning it into an entertainment and you're also telling people that the people you see who are scared and on drugs or, or poor, that they deserve to be chased down and probably thrown on the ground and yelled at because they're stupid, maybe only a little above, you know, animals. And that it's mm. funny to watch a guy in uniform scare them or knock them around. And the scary thing is that you get this idea that this is what policing should be. And it not only affects the cops that are on cops in, in the sense, and there, there's showings of this, is that you are driving around with a camera crew 
And you're a lot more likely to get on TV if you escalate a situation. Yeah. But also, a lot of people become cops because they watch those situations and they want to be the guy that throws somebody on the ground. And, oh, they're just a dumb idiot. And it's like they treat it like, you know, we're all going to laugh at these fools. Yeah. I I certainly didn't. Of course, I didn't understand because what cops came out in 89. Is it does does that about right? Is it 89 or 90? About I I think it was a 90s thing, but I. Uh, Um. I, of course, this was lost on me and being white and being from someplace that's rural, like I had no other than like a dare officer or whatever. Maybe when when some police officer gave my sister a ride home, not because she did anything bad, but because he was actually being a decent person. I had no experience with them. But when I'd watched Dog, it was like the one and only time I watched Dog the Bounty Hunter, which if you guys don't know, it's essentially it's the same formula as cops. There's a camera crew following around a guy who's not a police officer, but he has an authority as being a being a bounty hunter who he can go into situations, act aggressive, brandish weapons, mm-hmm. bark orders at people, and he's a lot less likely to have the cops called on him because he's serving a function of the state, right? Yeah, but also, and he'll. this is the same thing that will frequently happen on cops, is you have someone in the back of your seat who's in a coerced position, and you're going to wag your finger and give them a life lesson and think like, oh, I'm doing this guy a favor, when this person is being compliant because they're fucking terrified. Well, and but you- I think the, the thing about the dog, the bounty hunter, which I think is, which I didn't understand at all in cops but i definitely understood by the time i was in my 20s is he's in hawaii so mm-hmm. what are the, the the problems in hawaii far far different than the problems from you know metropolitan detroit the problems in hawaii are mostly that police would be called for are mostly having to do with drugs so if you watch an episode of dog the bounty hunter it's always likely that he is going after someone usually they're native or part native um almost always poor who they didn't they skipped out because they had a drug charge because it was like crystal meth and he's going in like rolling up with his like brother and a bunch of people and like yelling at a bunch of people and trying to rouse people out of their houses on a drug charge yeah and when you realize like they're people are poor people have mental illness these people are fucked over by this because not because they're bad people but just because they have human weakness but there's a cycle of of poverty that you can get pulled into with the law like you're just unable to pay a fine once right but like but you it's, like but the whole thing is he's coded dog the bounty hunter is coded as being heroic because he's going and, and chasing down these, these bad yeah. people in air quotes and in reality they're just weak people who've been who are being crushed by a system that's unfair and it's like you yeah, know but, maybe that was a coping mechanism for something but also the sense that you can just like like i'm saying you you're not able to pay a fine once and you're like, okay, so they take your license away until you can pay $300, but you're never going to have a spare $300. Yeah. And they take away your driver's license, but I still need to drive to work because if I don't drive to work, I'll lose my job. So they, you drive to work anyways, and you have no license, and you can't afford to not drive to work. So you get caught with that. Then they impound your car, and now you're like, well, fuck, I can't pay that. So then you end up going to you, – you're fines they compound upon each other then they throw you in jail for six months you lose your job and then pretty soon i really don't want to hear some guy with a mullet 
you know, wagging his finger at me <laughs> as if all I have to do is take personal responsibility, get out of this because the system, when it comes to poor people, it is so easy to tumble down that hole and wagging your finger at someone. Like if you're a rich person who gets caught up in drugs, you go to and one, your fines are dealt with because you can afford it, but you're going to go to a fancy rehab place that you can pay for. You oh, can, you can afford a lawyer. First you can afford foremost. a lawyer. You can also probably negotiate to not go to jail, but also have an ankle bracelet. And it's a lot less shitty to have an ankle bracelet if you have a giant fucking house Mm. and you can just pay people to get stuff for you. All of that stuff together. But again, probably the biggest lesson I've learned over the years, and it took me a long time to put these pieces together about who the cops are for, is I used to work in Tukwila at a bookstore. You know, I worked at, you know, Barnes and Noble. And, um, the thing to understand about Tukwila is it's a city, you know, you can hear the scare quotes on that, because there's barely anybody that lives there. There are some apartments and some houses and things, but not really very many. It's really just a city that's built around commerce. It's a it's a shopping mall and the surrounding businesses. But every time I've worked at a job that was in Tukwila, I didn't know a single person that lived there. Everyone always drove to Renton or Kent or Auburn or uh, West Seattle or something. Everybody worked somewhere, lived somewhere else from where they worked. So after 8 p.m., it's like a ghost town. That's a real constituency for the city is is the businesses. That's where their tax revenue comes from. It's not coming from, from residents. Um, they've got a hugely, even more than most, overfunded police department. And that police department has all these toys and nothing to fucking do with them. So I remember we had a shoplifter at once. Um, the, the cops were called because that's part of the protocol. And this shoplifter was caught about two or three blocks away by two police cars, a bicycle cop, and a fucking helicopter. <laughs> and... That is to, to get that kind of response in Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> you've got to go out with a rocket launcher and start shooting at random cars. You have to you have to work at it. You can't just do one thing and get that kind of response. But there's this crazy overreaction. And it's not only that, it's gotten worse the fact that the military is basically selling surplus stuff at very low cost. So cops have tanks and, and riot gear that they really want to use their toys. And I have found that the, the, the interactions with police officers, when you represent a company, you're at work and you're representing the property of rich people, the, the deference and the attitude that they treat you with is totally different. Did you guys watch the Beatles documentary? No. Uh, not yet. Not, uh, uh, I don't think this counts as a spoiler. Uh, they sing on a rooftop at one point, the Beatles do. Uh, and... The incredible thing, because it's a legendary story at this point, is that it was really kind of a spur of the moment. They, you know, they just kind of went up there. They didn't have permission or anything like that. And the police came because they did it in the middle of London and they were, they're interviewing passerby and half the people are like, they say, what do you think? Half the people are like, wow, it's amazing. It's, is that the Beatles? And the other half are like, oh, that's a nuisance in our, in our fair city. Don't <laughs> and so the police show up and... Uh, it's so funny to watch all of this bluster. He, they come in, oh, you know, like, what are you, what are you all, what are you doing here? You have to shut this down right now. Like, you know, turn that music off. (laughs) Um, but it gets, because he isn't dealing with an individual, it's, he's dealing with an organization. Um, it becomes 
he's not sure who to exert his authority over. Hmm. And so they keep sending people down to go stall him. So they send down like the, the Beatles, like um, they're, they're like friend and sort of like road manager, like comes down and is like, Oh yeah, we'll get right on that. Like, sure, sure. Yeah. Like, we'll get whatever you say, sir. Like, um, but it, it's, it's a different thing that is police love. I mean, it, some some police love to put their authority over an individual, but when they're dealing with an actual entity, all of a sudden they don't have they question their authority. They don't know where the limits of their power are. How do you wield imagined potential <laughs> violence against a thing that doesn't have a body? Uh, I might have actually told this story on 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 the pod before, mm-hmm. but I uh, long story short, I worked a weird job once at the American Express golf tournament, where it, it, I was doing promotional events, and it was everything from. Uh, you know, I opened up new, a new, fl- exciting new flavor of Pepsi at a town, at, like at country <laughs> fair, to uh, handing out condoms at concerts. But this particular gig was the American Express Golf Championship, and on the first day we were like stuffing gift bags, and on the second day we were at the we were at the tournament, and they're like, okay, you know, you're you're at this booth, you're at this booth, and they're like, okay, and you're on transportation. You're just gonna like welcome people as they with VIP buses coming in. You're just gonna say hi, welcome the thing, you know, go over this way. So I go, I stand where they tell me to stand, and this bus driver comes up, and he's like, all right, you're the, you know, you're with the event, and I'm like, yep, yep, and he's, and he's like, all right, so where should we, where do you want to stage this? <laughs> <laughs> and I look around, and we're like in. It, we're like in this back parking lot and all of a sudden I realize he's looking, he doesn't know who's in charge. He assumes I'm in charge. <laughs> and that was the theme for the day uh, was it became, it was a real lesson in imagined power because I had people throughout the day coming up to consult with me on various operations around <laughs> not just transportation, but like other events because people saw me as in some way, you know, you're, you're working here and there wasn't clear lines, of, there wasn't clear chains of command. And so because you don't know who should I be talking to, um, I realized that I could have pretended that I just ran the place and I would have. <laughs> I, like, I, w- uh, I ended up, uh, we got kicked out from place to place and we ended up in the player's parking lot. And I will conclude the story that uh, I had Tiger Woods' personal bodyguard yell at me. <laughs> get, those, get these buses out of here. Maybe that, isn't that the reason why... Uh... Why Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, is such a transformative figure because that idea of the imagined power where he's just like, I'm going to create an entire <laughs> structure where I'm the pinnacle of this religion and I mean, it all flows through me. That's that work for Dick Cheney. Yes. <laughs> Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
to the graphic nature of this program, viewer discretion is advised. In 1989, a new show popped up on primetime television that was like nothing anyone had ever seen before. The concept? Follow real police officers with video cameras as they arrest real citizens. I would say that in the history of television, this is a pretty grand statement, there is no simpler, better show than the format of Cops. Cops was the first real reality show. Now, 30 years and over a thousand episodes later, not only is Cops still on, it's everywhere. On cable, in syndication, it's on 15, sometimes 20 times a day. Just this past week, it was on 70 times. A constant drumbeat about policing in America. Over the last 18 months, we investigated Cops. When I looked up, I had their lights just flashing on me like, I know this not Cops. But it looked like cops. Do they accurately portray the profession of policing? I don't think they endeavor to do that. I went from having five guys to 25 guys overnight, arresting six, seven, eight guys a month to arresting over 300 people a month. I mean, it was crazy. We dug into how the producers make it, how much the police themselves control the content, how much say the suspects have in being on the show. Why were they working so closely with the camera crew? Why did they have so much authority? And they told her, you either sign this waiver or you won't get a bond. So, uh, yeah, she signed the waiver, but it was not voluntary. Nothing's voluntary when you got handcuffs on. I've talked to people who said they don't remember signing really. Yeah, and you know what I say to that? Bullshit. You know what? They're showing my face to millions of people across the nation, and they're getting ratings, and I'm not getting a damn thing. Open your mouth. Stick it out. Stick out your tongue. Spit it out. I'm telling you right now, you're gonna you're gonna spit it out, okay? Cops is just what it is. It's you can't question it. It is what it is. I can question it. You can over-intellectualize it, but you shouldn't. I'm Dan Tabersky. Headlong, season three, running from cops, premieres April 23rd. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. <laughs>